are coming into the finale of How to Conserve Conservationist. This is the very last podcast and it just conveniently happens to land on the book launch week. So this week is the week that we'll wrap up the How to Conserve Conservationist experience. But of course, you can re-listen to any of the episodes, you can reread the book. Um, the words that we said and the text that we've written is immortal now, so you can come back to it whenever you need to. But this is the last new conversation in the series. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the array of fun chapter names and the array of banter that Todd and I have brought to you. But this is the last weird chapter name you'll get from me, the last piece of banter you'll get from me and Todd. So I hope you strap in and enjoy this last conversation of how to conserve conservationists. Let's get into it. Hello everybody and welcome to the last ever episode of the How to Conserve Conservationist podcast. For the very last time, I'm Jesse. this I'm, is Todd. Yep. Were you going to say it? You can say it. I was going to say I'm Todd, and like the back and forth that you just decided to, uh, you can do the intro. <laughs> Let's do it again. <laughs> I'm Jesse. I'm Todd. And that's the way Todd likes it. <laughs> Okay, so this last episode is the, f- the conclusion chapter of the book, and it's called We've Tried So Hard and We've Come So Far, But In The End It Does Matter, which obviously... What a twist. Is a twist. <laughs> We're used to it not mattering, but I'm here to convince you today that what we do actually does have some impact, and we should just keep trying. Never fail. Because <laughs> failure, as we've learned... Is in, just a way to learn. In their personal lives or in their uh, battle for the for the planet? Everything. We're everything. Just, everything matters. We've got to keep going. <laughs> um, so basically, I think if you want a conclusion of the book, you should just read the last chapter of the book because this podcast is going to have a bit of a different structure. Um, I want to talk about like the things that have happened since publishing the book and since publishing the podcast and kind of what is the future of linear conservationists, even though I hate that question. And if you read the book, you'll know I hate that question. <laughs> but We have some housekeeping to do this episode. Like the whole episode is housekeeping? Is that I what guess you mean? So. <laughs> this is the housekeeping episode. Um, I asked people on Instagram and Twitter if they had any questions for me and Todd that they'd like us to answer in this episode, and we just only got two. So We got more, but they not weren't really questions. Not really relevant. <laughs> Um, but we got one question that was really good and I, I understand why they weren't, why there weren't a lot of questions. I think one is you don't listen to, like people might listen to episodes ad hoc and they might not listen to all of them at once or in order because you might be short on time or whatever. And you might not know if your answer has been answered. Your question has been answered in another episode. Um, I don't know. There could be a lot of reason. Also, like we may just be great and cover everything you need to know. <laughs> yeah, my assumption. Um, but there was a good question. So I don't know if you remember in the first episode, I asked you if you thought you were a conservationist and you said no. Um, one of our listeners wants to know if you still don't think you're a conservationist, even after this whole podcast experience, because from their perspective, you have done more in the conservation industry than most people in their undergrad. And they were really impressed by your work in Indonesia and all the things that you've done and talked about throughout these 11 episodes or 10 episodes. So they want to know if your perception of 
are you a conservationist has changed since this process? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you still don't think you're a conservationist? It's, it's not like my life passion. So I, like, I don't put my personal identity attached to the idea that I'm a conservationist. Yeah, but like, for, for instance, like people call themselves gardeners because they like to garden outside and they don't particularly work yeah, for exactly. gyms mowing or whatever. <laughs> but do you think such a big element of conservation is the passion? So you feel like you, you're not worthy of the name if you don't have it in your blood and your soul? Well, yeah, like I, I mow the lawn once every six months, but I don't call myself a gardener. I do do it on occasion, but it's not my life. Like, I make pizzas every week, but I don't call myself a pizza maker. Yeah, if you just go around and say, what do you do for your life, Jesse? Oh, I just make pizzas. That's what I do. Imagine if I I'm did a chef. that. I'm like, I make pizzas. And they're like, oh, who for? For myself. <laughs> when I'm hungry, <laughs> in the you, mood. How's your, is your business online? It's not a business. I just make pizzas. It's just, just what I do. I identify as a pizza maker. I was like, every day? Nah, once, once a week at most. <laughs> I think... There's always so much pressure on what we think people will think of us when we dub ourselves or something. Yeah, but I, I understand the point of like, you especially, and the question asker, you don't want to gatekeep conservationists. No. And you want to spread this idea that like everyone can be part of it. And like it's open to everyone. It's not just people with university degrees who have super duper grant money and the CEO of charities. But, like, I understand all that, but no thanks. <laughs> no thanks. Do you think, after all this time, you still feel there's a stigma associated with being a conservationist? Like, you don't want to seem like a greenie, or you don't want to seem like a Ooh. dreadlock person on the street with a picket sign? Potentially. I'd have to sit down and do some internal soul-searching <laughs> to decide if that's the case. Because I understand there's a perception of conservationists that's, like your typical greenie, vegan, dreadlocked, uh, hair and pants person. I do drink soy lattes. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I think that's a stereotype of some kind. I do drink kombucha, which I think is also a stereotype yeah. <laughs> of some kind. Um, but do you think because of the company you keep at work and in the circles that you play in, do you think that that has even some kind of a psychological impact on your definition of yourself as a conservationist? Quite possibly. Well, <laughs> but I'm not willing to admit it consciously <laughs> right now. <laughs> there we go. Some secret <laughs> psychological insights to Todd's mind. Um, the other question I said there was two. We're going to bank... This is going to be a 10-minute episode. Yeah, 10-minute episode. Um, the other question was just, how do you like that the Lonely Conservationist has dubbed you the nickname Todney? Are both these questions directed at me? Yeah. That's a bit sad for you. No, nobody wants to know anything from... I think because I have personal relationships... You have shared a lot. ...with a lot of conservationists, I've shared a lot. So they can just ask me whatever they want to ask me. Yeah. They want to know about this mystery Todney guy yeah. who just says dumb things from the sidelines on occasion but to be fair like i'll let you answer this question in a second but i just want to say a lot of the feedback i get has been about how much people respect your role in this podcast they respect your it crowd references your attempts at jokes <laughs> <laughs> the first episode feedback was like from my best friend who said i didn't think todd would be the right person for this role because he's lived his life with you and he like you expect him to know a lot about the conservation industry but the way that he like plays devil's advocate makes him perfect for the role 
I wish I could say I was like putting on a bit of a character of like the outside of like, oh, so Jesse, how does it work with this? But I honestly, I don't know. I'm legitimately asking. I think the first episode you did try to play devil's advocate more and then you just realized how little I knew anyway. <laughs> just started being yourself. Um, but yeah, back to the Todney question. You've, <laughs> you've never had a nickname like this before. so Yes, I have. Have you? I've had Toddles. Toddles, yeah. I've had... Todd, Todd, the fishing rod could not catch a Murray cod. I keep trying to tell Todd that this is not a nickname. <laughs> it's too long. I think it's more of a chant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Todney is a new one, though. Yeah, I haven't but, had Todney. But do you think it's endearing? Or do you think... What do you think of it? That, they just want to know what you make of this. I feel like thing. one person wants to know. One person. You know who you are. <laughs> um, I appreciate it. I, w- I will respond if you called me Todney. <laughs> So, uh, I know it's late in the game. You guys probably, you've been listening to Todd for 10 episodes, never once thought to call him Toddney. But now if you wanted to ever ask him a question through me, feel free to refer to him as that. In in pop culture right now, every character is called Todd is an asshole. With one exception. He's a bad guy. Which is Todd from Bojack Horseman, which is actually a very wholesome character. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. But he's like the one good Todd. What's weird is like sometimes people are like, oh, what's your partner's name? And I'll be like, Todd. And they're like, that's not a real name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's just unfortunate because you can't elongate it. Well, I guess people have tried with Toddney, but it's just like a one syllable name. Well, it's meant to be a surname and it's meant to be Todd Hunter because Todd means fox, which, but like everyone and their dog likes to pretend that they're a fox on the internet. Like, it's a very popular animal to feel like you personally feel like you are. But my name is Todd. (laughs) No, like, you know, cunning and sneaky and smart and, you know. I get, like, actual foxes are probably not great, especially in Australia. In Australian context, it's like, oh. By the Europeans to destroy all our native wildlife. Invasive, (laughs) yeah. I feel like if I ever saw a fox in England... Everyone will be like, oh, it's so cute. And I'll have this like instinctual, like, oh, why is it, what is it doing here? Even though it's yeah. its native land. I don't know if I've ever, like when Todd saw monkeys for the first time, it's a bit surreal to see an animal that you're not used to seeing in its native habitat in the wild. Yeah, right. Especially in Australia. Where... I've only seen a fox in the middle of a industrial suburb and it looked very rough. <laughs> It looked like it belonged there. Okay, we've got a bit off topic, but <laughs> these are the questions for Todd. Um, I guess if you ever have any more questions for Todd, just drop me an email uh, or send me an Instagram DM and I'll pass them on to him. And I don't have social media, so they can't ask me directly. It's just kind of good in a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I guess that's part that leads nicely onto the next um, segment, which is like a lot has happened since releasing the book and the podcast, which has been, like, not what I expected. So if you can remember in the first what did you expect? podcast episode, I was really shitting myself <laughs> about releasing the book and having people actually read it because I thought so... I don't know, like, for me to just create a book in lockdown, it didn't seem like anything spectacular in that. I don't know. I just didn't expect it to have the reaction that it's had from people. Especially because a lot of your book is pretty much, here's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh. And obviously, like, in this day and age, thoughts are often contested. Like, people's opinions 
if you say something on the internet like i think this you have a hundred people most vocal saying that's dumb to think yeah and i was kind of expecting that yeah but that didn't happen no you had the most vocal people were like yes absolutely you're on the right track here yeah which is crazy and it feels firstly it felt so like a warm hug to be vindicated and to be like jesse your thoughts and feelings are valid like that was really incredible but then everyone described reading the book as a warm hug so i feel like we're just hugging each other but virtually in this quarantine lockdown time that sounds right (laughs) yeah um but what what was the most striking thing to me is like i expected because i told such personal stories in both the podcast and the book and for me the reason i did that was to highlight what is happening in the industry and even if it's i know it's not just happening to me but i could speak to what is happening to me and so i never thought anything of it because i just thought like this has a purpose i am telling these stories because something needs to change what i didn't expect is how much like that was so emotionally exhausting to go on such a public mental health journey and i've mentioned this before that in the mental health podcast a lot of the things that i was chatting about with todd i'd realized just for the first time in that podcast So it was a bit surreal to like go through something I should have gone through with a a psychologist or like very personally, but I went through it in a very public platform. And although I only got positive feedback, it still was mentally draining to have such a public mental health journey. (laughs) And we talk about in the podcast and the book, all the limitations to getting help. But since doing the book and the podcast, I actually like since talking to people and then reading my stories and like addressing these feelings for the first time, I was seriously convincing myself that I might have PTSD. So I went to the doctor and he kind of agreed with me. We got on a mental health plan and I actually did um, make time to go see a therapist and sort this stuff out. So if it wasn't for the book and the podcast and going through this public mental health journey, I would never have acknowledged this, which I'm kind of thankful for, but it's been a very emotional experience to go through this in such like a public way. Yeah. You felt a bit compelled to just because you have to do what you preach. Yeah, that was a big part of it. But also like what I, I didn't really know because before this, right, I knew that some people had PTSD from their experiences, but I'd never heard anybody talk about what it felt like. I just heard they that's they're like I have this Mm. they didn't say this is what I experience this is what I go through and to have people tell me that and I was like oh this is what I experience this is what I go through yeah so so I was able to identify those feelings and also like PTSD is usually talked about as like war veterans and yeah it's it's very like oh a normal person can't really have that even though I I now know it's very common in the industry and amongst my friends that I didn't even know they had it before yeah it's well that's that's exactly what you're trying to fix of like just raise awareness Mm. that this is a thing this is how you can notice it here's how you can address it i wish if i did this when i was writing the book or before i was writing the book i think i wouldn't focus so heavily in the book about all the limitations to getting help even though they're still were so there and literally i had to publish a book and talk about my public mental health issues before I actually went and got help. Like, how crazy is that? That I had to publish a book before. Like, that was more accessible to me to write and publish a book um, yeah. and go get mental You're health. You're having to tell the entire world exactly how you're feeling. Like, oh, telling a, 
a professional. <laughs> oh, that just seems like a hassle. But what I would write about now is how empowering this process has been because I remember when I went to the doctor and what made me decide to do that was one day, I don't know, something must have been too hard and I was about to just not do anything that day and I was just going to sit and do a Todd Mope session. What? <laughs> <laughs> Patented Pulling Todd. Out my Mope sessions. <laughs> I was just going to sit there on the couch and do nothing all day and that's very unlike me. Like I thrive off productivity. Productivity is like my niche. <laughs> it's the yeah. thing that gets me going. It's I always can well, do it. If you've got something that's like ruining your entire day, clearly it's impacting your life at that point yeah and so i think for me the stigma was always like if you name something as an illness you're giving that power but for me to name it and to acknowledge it is taking that power back and working Mm -hmm. towards fixing it and when i was talking to the therapist oh no when i was talking to the doctor initially and i was like i want to do this because i think i have trauma relating to my uh my honors degree i'm getting into a master's this is something I'll explain as well later, <laughs> a life decision. Um, but I want to mitigate this and these feelings before they have the option to come up. Like I want to regain power of the situation before it has even a chance to take over me. And he was like, you're, <laughs> he was like, Jesse, ever since you called me on the phone to arrange this appointment and told me about your supervisor, I can't stop thinking about him. Like, <laughs> is he a psychopath? And also like, didn't you didn't he know that he was a student once himself and to have even that like instant vindication and validation that he thought that the supervisor was the problem and it wasn't me that was yeah. already great to hear that from a professional but two he said he was really proud of me for doing something in a preventative way not waiting until something had really ruined and taken over my life before I went and did something about it so I didn't really understand before I went through this process how empowering this would be Mm. and how it felt like I was taking control back because by getting help I wasn't giving power to all the people that hurt me or all the people that gave me trauma I was taking that power back because I was taking steps to not be burdened by that anymore and I'd never heard mental health be talked about that in in that context before of yeah i've heard people say it's a good thing to do and it's is great and it will help you but i've never heard it being talked about as such an empowering thing to do and like how it gives you such power back over your situation i mean i would not have guessed it makes you feel better (laughs) (laughs) i I didn't know that's what it was about (laughs) um so it's been kind of interesting to go through this process and to to destigmatize it for myself and I really thank this process and your feedback for helping me go through this because like as I said in the book I wrote all these barriers to doing it and it took until actually having these conversations and sparking this conversation for me to actually do something about it and I'm really glad that yeah. I did because when you wrote it you're you're in the mindset of like it is really hard to get into oh there's so many barriers the slightest reason not to I just won't but now that you've, you've done it, or you've started the process, mm-hmm. you can you could have like written in the book also of like, but... it's, it's, a, it's <laughs> potentially some of these barriers are illusionary and not too big a deal. There, and there like, is, it is it is worth getting through them. There is one thing though. So because everything's online now, like we're out of lockdown now, but still everything's not face to face. Well, society has changed. Society has changed. So 
the problem is that although I get a Medicare rebate and it will only cost me like $30 out of pocket, I actually had to pay $127 out of pocket for the therapy session. And then I have to submit a form and Medicare will give me that the sum back. The They'll give it to you as a check. The rebate as a check, which yeah. Which we don't use in Australia. So it's like, it is a barrier if you don't have $120, $127 or whatever, straight up out just of pocket, lying just lying around. Because you can't just pay the difference. You can't just pay $30. You have to go through this process. And that even is a limitation for me because I'm not getting paid at the moment. Like, I lost my job in March. Thankfully, there's government subsidies here in Australia, which means that in COVID, they even boosted the rates of that. So nobody is really, like, not having anything. Hopefully. I won't say nobody because there definitely is people that are really struggling. But, like, at least it gives you something. And I've just factored in that money this like for the foreseeable future to focus on my health but not like if you have to pay rent and all of your money goes to food and rent it's hard to fork out that much money straight up yeah and it feels weird actually as well a second kind of limitation is i've been having all these meaningful conversations with people who understand me and now to talk about this to someone outside of the industry is really interesting because you have to like baby steps explain everything when I'm yeah. so used to from the book and from this podcast having conversations with people who just get it automatically. Well, you sort of realize in the valley of the community that you created of a whole bunch of people who understand each other's plight mm-hmm. so intimately. And then you're like, oh, you know, I'll go to another place that should be able to help me with my plight. And they're like, oh, what? What do you mean you had to like worry about this problem and you felt isolated? Oh, if you had a problem with your boss, just leave. Oh, but I was in a different country with like, a contract and like it's not that simple guys yeah um but one of the things i'm working on now is Jean thomas who i was like very surprised reached out to me and if you guys don't know i don't know who the tenkale project it's a project in papua new guinea that works with the locals to help conserve the tree kangaroo and i watched a movie in the environmental film fest last year and it was all about the project and there was a Q&A with her and her husband and if you look on her website all of the testimonials are from like Jane Goodall and David Attenborough. And so as you can imagine, like my exposure to her was seeing her on the big screen Yeah, (laughs) and like having all these amazing people who I respect give her testimonials. The fact she reached out to me was... She's a big shot in your field at least. (laughs) Well, I don't know how many people... I've never heard of it. I know my my inner circle... She sounds amazing. My inner circle know about her because they went and watched the film with me. But to be fair, like, I don't know how many people know about this project or know about her. Yeah. Especially, like, she is Australian, so it might be just a bigger thing in Australia and Papua New Guinea. But you got in contact with each other. Yeah, she got in contact with me after listening to the podcast, so shout out, Jean, if you're listening now. Um, But she is doing amazing things with like she is a trained life coach and she offered me the opportunity to run through a life coaching program with her because she wants to start helping conservationists and giving conservationists this kind of help because she is a conservationist she's worked in tough environments in Papua New Guinea and she's gone on her own mental health journey so the fact that she's a trained life coach is like really incredible that she can help conservationists with this understanding so I'm going to go through this process with her and if I think it's going to be beneficial for a lot of conservationists then already I'm recommending her through this podcast Um, she's really amazing and I was like fangirling a bit when she reached out to me Um, but 
I can't wait to explore this as an option that could help the mental health journeys of conservationists because I feel like having someone that knows and understands takes away the frustration of having to explain everything and justify everything because that's a big part about why the community in itself brings me so relief is I don't have to justify or explain myself anymore. People like, Mm -hmm. I get it. And I think maybe that's why I was so apprehensive in the book. I'm so used to justifying and explaining myself. I kind of thought I had to justify and explain a whole book, but I didn't have to. Sort of, sort of was the point of the book, though. Justifying and explaining the problems you face that no one else in your life understands. I guess so. Like, I explained everything in the book and the yeah. podcast, so I don't have to explain it again. Um, Which is why you try to direct it potentially to, you know, family and friends of conservationists. Yes. So they can... Instead of justifying explaining their own things, they can just say, look, here's the book that lays everything out. Yeah. I, so I did an amazing interview with Molly and Brian, who also listeners of the podcast. Shout out to them. It was the best <laughs> interview of my life. And it was so good because they had read the book. They had read the podcast, read the podcast, listened to the podcast. They knew the questions I didn't like being asked. They knew the questions I thought were useful to ask. And they tailored their podcast questions to exactly what I had written about. And I literally could not stop smiling for the rest of the night because I was like, I have made it in life. Like (laughs) I have communicated effectively with people and got a result from that. And they're like... Jess, I was going to introduce you as inspiring, but then I heard on your last podcast that you hated being called an inspiration. So what I'll do is I'll call you inspiring, but then I'll give you evidence and I'll justify why I think that. And I was like, just by doing that, it means I have inspired you because you have taken action according to something I've said. And that's really incredible. Um, What was I going to say about them? I had a point. Really oh yeah, I really did. But also at the end, um, Brian told me that he's trying to get his wife to read it so she oh. can understand more about what he goes through. And I thought that's really amazing. Like if every conservation who gets something, every conservationist who gets something out of it, can give it to their wife, their partner, their family, their friends to read, it might help people be more understood in the industry. And maybe we can start having some real conversations um, because this book's already changed my life from just that mental health perspective and just feeling validated in my angst. <laughs> um, which is trauma. <laughs> my angst and my trauma. Because um, I didn't even realise a lot of this was trauma. Like, And now it explains so much of how I react to things or do things day to day where it's not necessarily like normal or healthy, but I just never recognised that before. So I appreciate everyone who has helped me along this journey because... This book has actually, like, it's really helped save me as a conservationist. Like, I've conserved myself with this book. <laughs> I know, shed a tear. So, yeah, that's um, been really good. Have What has this process been like for you? Because you told me at the start of the year that it would be fun to do a podcast together. So when I had this idea, it was kind of like, you're open to it, but you've never done anything like this before, and I guess you weren't used to the audience and the feedback you'd get or anything. So what has it been like for you? Uh, I mean, I haven't paid too much attention. <laughs> I, I accept my role as a sounding board for your thoughts. <laughs> well, I think your role is If it was just you, that. like, monologuing for an hour, that might be weird. God forbid. <laughs> yeah. But I send you all the feedback of the people who have written messages about your role in the podcast. Yeah, I do appreciate it. <laughs> Todd always All of the listeners back. are amazing. 
he's always like, aww. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think in the beginning, he didn't expect anyone to listen. And now, because I have the stats on the app of who listens, and we're almost at a thousand listens, and I think every time we watch the like ticker tick over to the next lot of hundreds, it was we're getting really excited because we didn't think this podcast would be that useful. So the fact no. that people actually want to listen is good. <laughs> well, me and my mates tried to do a podcast like five years ago, and we had like hundred listens and we thought we we're doing really well now we've got 10 times but. yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah so that's really incredible and i'm so glad you guys have got something out of this podcast um i'll share on all the social medias when brian and molly's podcast come out because it was really amazing but i loved in the beginning how they're introducing me and they were talking about how they've always tried to find a conservation podcast like there's so many podcasts on plants and animals not a lot about conservation and conservationist and they um, the ones they do find are a bit boring. So they mentioned how they loved in the first episode, we talk about lemurs being basic bitches and it gave them confidence that the rest of the episodes would follow suit and be a bit more fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really glad that people like how honest of a conversation this is because I think in conservation, a lot of people dance around on eggshells for like yeah. X, Y, Z amount of reasons. Um, we tend to we try to write down what we're going to talk about each episode and we, and we never have it on the computer it. and then we just never look at it <laughs> so it's a very real and honest conversation and i think i'm interested to know if you've read the book and listened to the podcast if you've got different things out of each one or if they they complement each other if they're different experiences or if you get bored because you already know what i'm going to say <laughs> yeah potentially we weren't sure what sort of dynamic the book and podcast would have because the the book is really serious. I th well, it's interesting because the feedback I've I got. Mean, have in the you book, seen the chapter names? Okay, so I think that's the thing. Is like, it's Jesse Flair. The chapter <laughs> names are a bit fun and weird, um, and the way I talk is a, is like very Jesse style. So it's gonna be a bit like. You write like you speak. I write like I speak, um, but the content I talk about is very serious. So, <laughs> I got some feedback the other day, which I love that it kind of like compliments each other my flippant writing style with the serious topics it means that you're not too bogged down all the time that <laughs> like yeah. whenever you hit a new chapter you see the chapter name and it brings you back up again <laughs> <laughs> um so i guess that's it's been good that i've been able to show so much of myself not just like in a serious this is what's in, happening in the conservation industry but like have those fun chapter titles and that be respected as well <laughs> <laughs> We had arguments over the chapter titles, potentially. <laughs> Todd Jesse's didn't very like happy them. with how they worked out. Yeah. This, okay. This is like the most controversial thing. So what? Todd thought I would only sell six copies of the book. I said no. <laughs> and every time. I was trying to set expectations. So when you inevitably did sell six immediately, I could be like, wow, I'm so proud of you. You've exceeded my dreams. So when I found out that I sold enough copies to like break even on the amount I spent producing the book, I was like, shove it in your face. Take this six copies. <laughs> Which is exactly the attitude I was trying to invoke. And so I get my stats every night at 7pm. So I always look at how many books I sold. It's surprisingly clockwork, isn't it? Yeah, but also um, it's 7pm because it's an American site. So it's probably like midnight for them. Oh. But it's 7pm for me. Okay. <laughs> um, and there's the only the discrepancy is that if you get an ebook, stores will upload all that data at once. So I might get like no ebook sales for a month, and as soon as the month clocks over, I'll get like twenty ebook sales. 
But before that information, last night when I checked the stats, I was two off of 100 sales of the book. And that's crazy because Todd only thought I would sell six. <laughs> I'm very happy you sold more than six. I said in the wedding he should vow to believe in me more. <laughs> <laughs> Just overall. Just overall. <laughs> All right. Jesse, I won't be impressed unless you sell half a million copies. Thank you. I wouldn't be striving to that and then be disappointed when I don't get that. That's the opposite of what I would want, but okay. <laughs> if that's how your brain works. Well, there's, there's a difference between somewhere in the middle of six and half a million. I feel like... Remember, like, in high school, everyone would do the test? And you have, like, some kids who... They're really... They're the smartest kids in the class. And they'll get their test result to 98%. Mm-hmm. And they were like, fuck, oh, what a terrible result. What did I get wrong? How horrible. Oh, I'm so disappointed. And then there'll be other kids who are like, yes, I got 60%. That's a pass. That is so great. I- I'm more in the latter. I'm none of them. You're more I'm, in the... Uh... I never got 88. No, not 88. I never got like 99 or 98. It was rare. I got 100% once yeah. on a drama assignment. And it's because we had to make a play and I ripped off the song... Um, Hit the Road Jack by Ray Charles and I turned that song into a play and the teacher obviously liked the song and she thought it was good so she gave me a hundred marks. You could not have done that play better. (laughs) But that's like, it's it's not even for science or anything. (laughs) Yeah, like a math test you could feasibly get everything right but a play could arguably be better. (laughs) Much more subjective. That one couldn't. Okay. It was the best play I could have it ever was a, produced. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even I had to produce the play. I just had to write the script for it. That's, I mean, it's just you. So there's not, if, not much production. I don't even know if it was a musical because obviously I had lines of the song in there to add a flair. Mm. Anyway, that's like the only full okay. grade I ever got. I was never like top of my class, but I was never the bottom. It was like anywhere from 75 to 86. That's a Jesse Woolpark. Having said that, apparently now... <laughs> Anything less than New York Times bestseller list is a failure for just No, I don't think I'll get on a bestseller list because this book is so niche, right? It's not going to be like Harry Potter where everyone can get something out. I, yeah. w- I wish everyone could get something out of it because there's enough conservationists that need to be understood. And yeah. there's enough people on eco journeys and exploring ethics and stuff that it could get to that stage. But like I'm a self-published author from Australia, like... It's hard to market in COVID. Like, I can't do a book tour. I can't do, like, half the stuff people do. Um, speaking of which, come to my book launch <laughs> <laughs> next week on the Saturday. All the information but is Jessie, on the website. the book has already been launched. Yeah, it's been launched, but um, I wanted to give people a chance to get the book and have a read. So if they want to jump into this discussion or ask any questions or um, have a little bit of more context behind it, like, I think it so- will be better to have some context of the book before you jump in. But it's also, like, laid At out. At least for some people, there. Yeah. Like, it's also laid out, so if you know nothing about the book, it's fine. And this is going to take the form of a Zoom call. Yeah. Pretty much. A Zoom call. But uh, you should bring wine or beer. Yeah. Uh, nibbly bits. If you're if it's, like, your time zone, if it's in the morning, a little mimosa, uh, Irish coffee. What Whatever alcohol is appropriate for that hour. So... I sent the first chapter to a lonely conservationist who came to a lonely conversationist discussion and he is from India and he's like, Jesse, in my first chapter I had something about getting a glass of wine and he's like, some countries don't drink, some people don't drink, you should, oh. you should just say drink of choice. 
So I changed it to drink of choice. So okay. now get your drink of choice and join us. Uh, yeah. Get some snacks. It's going to be really like fun and casual. And I really hope you guys can come because like COVID has been shit this year. This year has been really challenging and it would just be good to have a nice celebration with everyone. Mm. I think when and for you... Australian celebration equals drinking alcohol. Yeah. So if you think we're alcoholics, it's our culture. Yeah. <laughs> I always forget, like, so in Australia, like Friday night, all the office goes down to the pub for a drink. I think it's the same in like Scotland, Ireland, England. Yeah. But apparently like someone went to America and they're like, um, let's go to the pub after for a drink. And everyone was driving that like, they literally just had one drink and went home. But that's not the culture yeah they're like let's go to the pub for a drink after work and they're like yeah okay and then they go and they have one drink and go home like yeah. what the hell is this <laughs> it's supposed to having a drink I'm like yeah we did one drink in australia a drink never means one drink yeah a drink means you're not waking up tomorrow morning so yeah um bring whatever your snacks your drinks of choice and come join us i don't know if todd will be there we'll todd- <laughs> surely be there you want to be at work well, it's 7pm on a Saturday. That's, that sounds doable for 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, Saturday the 21st of November. Um, it would be cool if you were there and people, just for like a Q&A part, if people want to ask you anything, you can join in for that segment. I want to say people aren't interested in me, they're interested in you, but all the questions so far have been at me, so exactly. I better be there. All two of them. <laughs> so if you want to meet Todney for the first time, IRL, join us on the book launch. So, yeah, that's one thing that's going to be happening. Um, so, yeah, so I mentioned before that I'm going to be doing a master's. And this might come as a surprise. Because oh, yeah. So, wait, is, what's next for Lonely Conservationists? <laughs> this is the one episode we can follow as groups. <laughs> um, well, firstly, should I say, I know I talk about how much I hate this question, but I feel like I can ask it to myself because, like, I'm not offended by myself thinking that I'm not doing enough already because I'm i know there's things that's gonna... how are you going to build it to be bigger and better but just at a personal level what are you planning for what your personal life my life um so i this sounds weird because i shit on academia a lot and then i also <laughs> said oh, i know it's hypocritical hypocritical that i shit on academia but i might do a phd i'm going to meet in the middle and do a master's of research well hopefully i applied for it so let's hope <laughs> i get in um it won't be in conservation it will be in psychology. So mm-hmm. I want to look at conservationists. And where are you going? I'm just getting my jacket off. Hang on. Keep telling them about your masters. Okay. Um, so I'm going to be looking at psychology and the, the psychology of conservationists. I want to continue my conservation psychology journey. Um, I... I'm excited to be in a different faculty that's not conservation and to have like multidisciplinary approach. Is it just like um, the kangaroo tree lady? <laughs> what, where she like, you know, a lot of conservation work, but also recognize, you know, the need for life coaching, mm-hmm. helping other conservationists, not just in a profession, not just in a. Uh, technicality conservationist way but in a professional way yeah i don't know if i if it's appropriate to talk about what actual project i plan to do because with science like is anyone gonna poach my idea before i get to do it but if they do like (laughs) i'll be happy that if someone else does it that's great (laughs) you don't have to do it but basically um i want to just 
make sure that there's things in place to help conservationist well-being and look a bit more about like how we can help the well-being of conservationists so get my science back on because i really miss science and i don't know have i talked about this on here before but i've been writing a manuscript and i might i've talked about this in the blog that i've done some science using the blog post like some quantitative science to see um what constrains us what inspires us and the emotional language we use I've written up the manuscript for that and hopefully that can get published before I start my master's. So I think after such a public mental health journey, I want to kind of go back a bit and become a reclusive scientist again. (laughs) (laughs) We say the flip side to you focusing on other things now is hopefully the community is sort of self-sustaining more. It doesn't just need you posting things on Instagram constantly. Well, like I don't want to hide away because I understand the value of being honest and talking about the things that need to be talked about um but at the same time i need to find a balance between conserving my own sanity and doing that so i hope to find a line between being the spokesperson for these issues and not giving so much of myself away that it's like very emotionally taxing for me because i did watch a lot of new girl recently like i spent a a lot of time on the couch and that's fine but i feel like I shouldn't have, it's just taxing to spend so much time going through such an emotional introspection. Um, (laughs) And I, as I said in the glorification episode, I don't want to be the spokesperson, like I'm happy to be the spokesperson, but I don't want to be like the face of it, or I don't want lonely conservation. The lead example. I don't want lonely conservationists in my life to be synonymous. I want lonely conservationists to be a community comprised of individuals that are all kicking ass in this area and I don't want it to begin and end with me I want it to be like a network of things happening independently so although I I want to keep fostering the community and keep putting a lot of energy into it I think the book and the podcast have kind of made me more of a spokesperson than I would like to be and that needed to happen I think to start a conversation but now the conversation has been started it would be cool to see the rest of the community carry that on i um i just am finding that by living the lonely conservationist lifestyle that i'm currently living it's not adhering with my beliefs of like i don't want to be the face of it i want to be just the person that keeps it going from the back um i guess the next thing that i'm going to be doing alongside the science is A few people may have noticed on the website I've put up something called talks and workshops and I want to start getting more intimate with NGOs, clubs, uh, schools. If you'd like me to speak to your classroom, your NGO and kind of talk a bit more about these issues but tailored to what your community is and what your community needs or to run half day, full day workshops with you um, to kind of address these issues more personally. I would love to do that. So just get in touch with me through the website. I think my personal passion is public speaking and not like, so I like being a spokesperson and I like speaking about things, but I like doing it face to face. I'm not a very internet person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So if I can have the opportunity to build some in-person connections with people around the world, even if it's on the internet, but like more intimately through like a Zoom meeting for your office or your school or something that would be really cool to build those more personal connections with people. 
as I guess I said in one of the episodes, I don't want to be a robot leader that's not connected to people. And so I think I want to take a step away from being like the all-encompassing leader of lonely conservationists and start being somebody that starts working on these issues properly. And I guess for me, that's doing the science and finding the answers and implementing those solutions and working with NGOs and, and classes and clubs to help them find more wellness and more value for their conservationists and make them more happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as, well, as a computer nerd, I can only think about like the, the, the technologies, the platforms you use for learning conservationists. Like Instagram, it's just your personal account that you post compared to like uh, Reddit or Discord or like mm-hmm. forum. Where everyone's contributing. Where everyone just contributes but like if you have everyone contributing it can quickly turn into a lot of noise and the most vocal annoying people go to the top can be the loudest yeah i'm pretty sure if you're loud that's fine but like <laughs> it's, it's hard to get like everyone feeling like they're part of it mm-hmm. yeah and like in life i'm very stringent with my values of people and how i want people to behave <laughs> yeah. i don't know like this is I am very strict with lonely conservationists and the values I want to instill because that's who I am as a person. And if you know me, you know that like I had a bit of a reputation in Adelaide for being a bridge burner (laughs) because if you have little patience for people, I have little patience for people who constantly hurt other people or who use other people or like I'll get, I give people chances. Don't get me wrong, but there's only so much I can take. Like, if I've known you for a long time and you're a bad person, the time that I've known you doesn't count for anything. Like, I need yeah. you to be a good person right now. Yeah. Um, well, I was just saying, like, just any public space on the internet tends to have, you know, trolls. Yeah, who, exactly. There aren't conservationists. They don't give a shit about any of it. They're just there to, you know, cause a ruckus. So I kind so of... You have to prune, like, weeds constantly. <laughs> and it, that's, like, a whole job. Yeah, I don't have time to prune the weeds. <laughs> so I just wanted to cultivate something that was going to be, like good and wholesome from the beginning and that's where the instagram page kind of works for that well the instagram and the blog you can like pretty much like be the editor the self pruner yeah (laughs) or just pick by hand things but i don't think that's long term yeah way to go and i'm just thinking from a technology point of view the practical what's 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 a better more useful tool yeah and it's still me on my own And like as much as the whole community is collaborating and I've had help from different people and for a while we had a bit of a team and there's people who are offering help because they have the same mindsets. I don't want to get into a position where I'm like, lonely conservationist is my baby and I won't let anybody else in. You are a bit like that though. But at the same time, every conservationist is so passionate about their thing. Like if it's sea turtles or elephants or penguins or like they're going to dedicate their life to saving that and lonely conservationists won't be their first priority like it is mine. So I feel like if I had a team, they probably wouldn't be conservationists. There would be admin people to do like the businessy, financy, admin stuff. And because that's the stuff that I don't like doing. (laughs) (laughs) This is the first piece of advice from the life coach that I really like, really stuck me hard. I don't like doing finance businessy stuff and people will hear me talking about my business incubator journey where I said it was such a challenge for me and it's still a big limitation for me in going out and doing my own business on a, like a more self-sustaining way is because there's just such a mental block it's such a barrier for me to learn those skills and to overcome this 
but she basically said if that's going to be a mental block how can you ever achieve in this area if you keep letting it stop you yeah so either i'll have to just get over that and learn how to do it or hire somebody so i think this is something i i it's been a process but something i've had to learn is maybe other conservationists aren't the right collaborators for me in this project maybe i need to get business people or philanthropic people or psychologists like maybe i need to collaborate across disciplines because I want to leave conservationists to doing the things they're passionate about because that's I want to conserve the conservationists. I don't want to yeah. convert the conservationists. Yeah, you know? you're not interested in working out uh, the... I don't, I don't even know what business things <laughs> we have to worry about yet, but like, yeah, if you're not interested in it, what makes you think other conservationists are yeah. going to happen to also be super interested in it? Conservationists that do it, do it because they've had to for a paying job. Yeah. I don't know how... They, they might be good at it, but I don't they think... They sort of just happen to have it. Yeah, it's not like a be on end or what the, It would be just a stepping stone, where if I'm so passionate about lonely conservationists, it's hard to think of it as a stepping stone for someone else. Yeah. When it's, like, the only thing I care about for me. Yeah. But what's been good is with, like, the blog... The blog? Yeah, I guess the blog. <laughs> and the book and the podcast is... We've reached different audiences, because not everyone reads a website. Like, that's not something people do anymore. So the fact that we've been able to get people who read books and people who listen to podcasts and see that there's more of an audience and more of a need for the things that I'm talking about and for kind of the stuff that I'm offering, because I had some feedback that's like, oh, I've been kind of, I never really understood what Lonely Conservationist was about. And then I listened to the podcast and now I totally get it. It really resonates with my life. So I feel like it's just hard to communicate across all channels. And I'm glad that these different channels have been able to spread this message to different people because i think instagram i have like over four thousand followers but only like a hundred people will see what i post and that means like that's such a tiny fraction like one percent yeah like it's not effective like you have diehard lunatic conservationist fans who didn't know a podcast existed yeah it's hard to reach everyone um i accidentally deleted the um, YouTube channel, oh, yes. which is my latest saga. Do not freak out, people. <laughs> I'm, I'm fixing it. Like, <laughs> I, I won't get into how it will happen, but don't freak out. I'm well, working on it. you click the delete button <laughs> <laughs> on the channel. <laughs> this was by accident because of, like, I have a whole heap of different, like, um, emails and something went wrong and then I thought clicking a button would fix it and it didn't and then it's, like, all gone to shit. Um, <laughs> but... I, I realized I was going to put it all under Lonely, Converse, Lonely Conservationist again, but then I realized in the book, I was like, check out the YouTube channel, Lonely Conversationist. <laughs> so I have to keep it like that. Oh dear. Um, but I think because I was working with a team at that stage, it was under somebody else's name. It would be good to revamp it back under mine. So if you notice that the channel is missing, I don't know, just bear with me on this one. <laughs> it's probably fixed by the time this podcast goes up, but that's a little inside drama you probably didn't know was happening yeah well this is the kind of thing where like it seems like such an easy thing to just have an instagram page but like so a little drama like this happens and you spend like eight hours fixing it yeah like <laughs> and it seems like such a simple thing of just have a youtube channel sitting there it's crazy because and it takes so much work i always think like now the book's out i have plenty of time to just chill and that's so not true <laughs> 
there's like now that I'm publishing this manuscript and I'm like applying for masters and then there's like I keep since the book and the podcast I keep getting invited to talk and things which is like my passion so I'm not complaining about it at all and like creating the um, book launch and doing a lot of marketing and making sure people see that that's a thing um, it's interesting how much time everything takes yeah I feel like and this is something that's been so important to me is my mentor really tries to stress to me how much of a project manager I am and how I sit every day and I answer emails and I market things and I create spreadsheets and I'm like working the whole day in basically a project management role. But yeah. because this is something I'm doing off my own volition and I don't have like a boss or anything, I never see myself as a project manager. And I think it's important for me to try to learn a lot of the values from the community and start recognizing the skills that I've been using in doing this and selling myself as that person, not as like the girl that started this on her couch moping around. Like mm. part of me thinks I'm still the Jesse from the couch, but now I'm like this project manager and I have to start selling myself as that instead. Yeah. So it's been like... A it is hard though, because like none of this makes you enough money to live on. No. Even and so like no matter, despite all of this, you're still going to have to like get a job in something you're maybe not interested in yeah it's crazy that doesn't really make full use of your skills <laughs> it's crazy because like so the book earnings that i've earned so so far is still less than one paycheck of todd's <laughs> like i've had to write spend like months writing and publishing and editing and checking and marketing yeah and like selling books and Todd can get one paycheck from a fortnight at work. And it just is like... I think that's most of book publishing. Unless yeah. you're in the New York Times <laughs> bestsellers, you're not living off it. But what's crazy is I'm like, wow, I actually can earn money from something I did. Like, that's amazing. And you just, found a avenue, at least, yeah, for, for profit generation. Like, that's not like a sustainable profit generation. But for me, it's just impressive that I've managed to do something that creates a profit. Yeah. I know you've always talked about for like almost anything... You have a really high bar when someone expects payment for a service. <laughs> I think that sounded weird, but like... What do you mean? <laughs> I Just uh, for comedians, you'll be like, they must really think they're funny. Oh, yeah. If they think they can charge money for their comedy. I just think comedian, stand-up comedians... And it's almost the same with like blogs and books. Like, you know, a blog's free, so you must really think this book is great if you're going to charge money for it. I just have this thing about comedians and models. Like, comedians think that they're so funny, we have to pay to listen to their jokes. And models think they're so pretty, we have to pay to look at their face. Model, yeah. You can just walk up down the street and see people's faces for free. What, what makes them think they can charge money? Obviously, I know if you're a comedian or a model, there's more to your jobs than that. I respect you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't come for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's... that's what I mean. You're starting to understand it, of like, you, you could do all of this for free, but it's but not going to work. Yeah. And also like, I value the things that I've written in that book. I wouldn't have written it if I didn't think like this. Is, I did. I was in lockdown and I did have the time, but I didn't write it because I was bored. I wrote it because I had to get this information out there in a cohesive way that wasn't I wasn't able to get it out on social media. Like, yeah, you could. Yeah, it's a different format. Yeah, because it, I wanted a way to take everything I'd learned and pass that on to people. So it's not just me knowing everything and trying to fix everything on my own. Because I wanted to do like a ripple effect, whereas like 
if I know something, I can tell other people and they can act on it and they can yeah. tell other people and they can act on it. Would you say you've created the Lonely Conservationist Manifesto? Manifesto. That just reminds me of manifesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a manifesto. What is a manifesto? I think it, that's what it comes from, like plan to manifest. So it's like the result of a manifest. You get a manifesto. It's it's like the, the guidelines of what you want to manifest. Mm. I think like... It's crazy because in my wildest dreams, I could have never imagined that lonely conservationists would be like this and that I would spend all my days doing stuff and I'd have a book and a podcast and it would be like such a big part of my life and so important to so many people. And because I never thought that, there's still a part of me that's like surprised every time that somebody finds value in what I do. (laughs) It's just like when everybody tells me that... You appreciate it. Everyone who even just puts enough attention to read a Instagram post like you really appreciate them yeah I really it feels personal it feels like I have told you something about myself and you've been like yeah I relate to you I validate your reasons for talking about this and everyone is always so lovely they always say like thank you for your work thank you for doing this and it makes me feel like what I'm doing is really important and I think that's why Telling people they're doing something good is really important because I was so scared of doing publishing the book and we were scared to do the podcast. But what keeps us going is that people tell us how important this work is and it makes us, like, despite the lack of pay and despite everything else, it makes it important for us to keep going. So I think that's why being nice is really is powerful stuff. <laughs> because, like, if you don't... Going back to, like, the importance of talking to conservationists, Like, if we don't get value from anything else, if we don't get value from pay, from bosses, (laughs) like, from anything... Animals successfully not going extinct. Yeah, like, it's that's what makes... Where is the payoff of conservation? Words of affirmation is, like, so important (laughs) to conservationists. Yeah, it's all we have left. (laughs) So I do do really appreciate all the feedback from the books. I'm surprised when anyone reads it. I'm surprised that 100 people have bought it. Thank you to all of those people. I just like, <laughs> I, I encourage you, like if you've just listened to the podcast, just to give the book a read, because I think you might get something different out of it because of just, it's less like flippant. It is actually very thought out and um, <laughs> it is like more methodical. It's worth reading and then you can throw the copy to your loved ones yes so i'm a big fan of like reading books and passing them on because like when i read something i find super interesting and useful what's the point of it just sitting in my bookshelf so i've probably given away like hundreds of dollars worth of books to people um, (laughs) because i feel like knowledge sharing is so important and books are like a big part of my life and i'm always reading and i feel like just to share that is so important nowadays where there's so much fake news so I encourage you, if you read your copy, to pass it on. Like, I don't care if I lose profits if people aren't buying their own copy. For me, what's important is the message. Yeah. Don't feel the need to, like, buy 10 copies just so Jesse gets money. Yeah, I'm still an environmentalist. (laughs) (laughs) But also, if you want to give it to people as a Christmas present, I would not be opposed. (laughs) Because I feel like um, it's helping you. Well, I hope it's helping you if other people can understand more. And I've only heard, like... One negative piece of criticism where um, a guy gave it to his boss or asked his boss to read it, and he has he's an old white man who's been in the industry for a long time, and I think his experience of conservation 
is very very different to a 28 year old woman um but also yeah. like it was even different from this guy's perspective like they were both men but just the age gap and the generational gap in how different it is to get into the industry and what people yeah. have experienced is very different so i could believe it's changed over time yeah but then somebody else messaged me and they said their dad has gone through the same thing that i've written about and they couldn't believe how generational it is so maybe like two generations is similar and the third generation doesn't understand (laughs) it's it's you're probably stereotyping too much and i think every individual has their own experiences but i i don't some people maybe they were like i want to save echidnas yeah and then they just got a job doing echidna work and it was really great and they did that for 40 years and they're like, what's all this stuff that he's complaining about? <laughs> I've never the, experienced that. I'm the president of I'm the president Kinderland. Kinderland. <laughs> the kidnaps are roaming around free. It's been going great. We've got plenty of money. We never have to stress out about any of these things that she does. Well, Everyone's really supportive of each other at the workplace. What I'm saying is... if an, I'm sure there's people like that. That is an, great. If an old white man says, my stories <laughs> are too negative and that the book's like not good because it's a negative representation, I don't take offense because my experience as a young woman in the industry is very different to his as an old man. Can I ask you one hard-hitting critiques analysis question? Yes, please. Do you worry Mm -hmm. that some younger people who wanted to be conservationists would read this book, uh, learn how difficult it can be, and be turned off the idea? I have two answers. One is I don't think conservationists have a choice. (laughs) <laughs> like if you're born with passion like you're not you're, you're not screwed. i mean erin like a uh, lawyer or conservationist no, like, one, which one i don't know flip a coin everybody knows there's no money in conservation like my mum told me when i was getting into science she's like there's no money in science people know this already even before i wrote this book people know the limitations to becoming a scientist or to becoming an environmentalist they that, well they did, that's what, that's probably fairly more public knowledge but they didn't know like how much worker exploitation yeah. and happens. The second part of it is I think we need to be not making my mistakes and you can still be a conservationist without doing everything the way I've done. So you can get, if you are smart, you'll probably <laughs> get other skills like cross disciplinary skills. So you could be like an engineer and a conservationist. You could be a, a business person and a conservationist because I wish I had more skills other than just conservation based skills and yeah. I feel like this book could be a good opportunity to showcase that if you're a purist conservationist your life could be really hard but what the industry needs is more people with other things to bring to the tables to, t- to start changing these problems and I think a lot of about science and conservation is you see a problem and you want to solve it I've given you problems and now maybe <laughs> you can just become a conservationist, conservationist like me and help me solve this problem. Yeah. There's a lot of avenues. I feel okay. like if you're put off from conservation from reading my book, maybe you don't have the spoons to be in the industry anyway. Like maybe that's probably a good thing then. Yeah. Like <laughs> save yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, the, you, you, you say that like most conservationists are in it for the, the passion. Mm-hmm. But like yeah, as you maybe allude to, passion only gets you so far. The so you need to be a skilled, useful person. <laughs> exactly, and this is what Todd tells me all the time. <laughs> he actually gave me an ultimatum, and he's like, Jesse, by the time you're thirty, you need to be supporting yourself 
otherwise well, well otherwise you have to change careers yeah yeah so like kind of <laughs> that's reasonable in a way because if you read my book and you see how much i've struggled doing the same thing for 20 years like yeah obviously if you were still like paying to go do conservation work <laughs> every six months in other countries and it never went anywhere i would say like you know you might need to rethink what you're doing with your life so when did you tell me this it was before lonely conservationist so i think like my first plan was to go to pick an ngo h- like hustle hard volunteer until i got a job that didn't work created lonely conservationist now i've become a conservationist conservationist already a career change <laughs> but now i'm doing my master's in psychology and hopefully that will get me into um, being like a consultant and helping people understand the value of conservationists so their conservation work can be more long-term and more effective and sustainable so i feel like i can always make this master's the first year of a phd program and continue that in industry science so work with ngos to do science like and investigations related to their exact organization i could just decide that after the master's program everything's good and i can go out on my own now um so i have a lot of options of what i can do but i think okay so it's been a week since i've recorded this podcast and i've been thinking about how i recorded this and i felt like i had my life together but that is such an illusion because ever since then I found out that universities across Australia have had their budgets massively cut. I thought I was going to be able to get a stipend to support myself during masters. That's not possible anymore. And now I'm reconsidering if going back into academia is actually smart when I wouldn't be able to um, like fund my cost of living. So my whole life has been turned upside down a week later. Um, so I just want to keep this real to say like, I have no idea what I'm doing and if you feel like you have no idea what you're doing or you have a plan one week and then it goes to shit the next week, you're definitely not alone. So I just wanted to put this in there because I don't feel comfortable saying that like, yes, I have this grand plan when it basically like after weeks of putting effort in to make it happen, I don't know if it's the most sustainable thing for my life anymore. So yeah, um, back to the episode. (laughs) That's something that's really important Todd advice that I've learned from this journey is that, and this is why I answered this question like that, is I think there needs to be more marketable skills because like the government's not always gonna value conservationists, but they could value you as an engineer and you can just apply those skills to the conservation sector. Yeah, it's, I'm gonna get political. Go get political. It's a sad, sorry state of affairs that we live under capitalism basically. (laughs) Like conservationists should be just like a public municipal mm-hmm. like people need water people need you know working electricity people need working you know natural spaces ecosystem like ecosystems that keep the freaking planet working mm-hmm. and it should people just should funnel money into that like this is just the cost of living on planet earth yeah exactly. we have to have professionals look after it yeah so it's that's sh- really what it should it's be it's shitty that it comes under capitalism because we don't have anything to sell we just have yeah, things no, to do. <laughs> there's no valuable output to the economy. And I think other than in a hundred years, the planet won't be on fire. <laughs> yeah. But like politician circles are three to four years, so like they yeah. don't care what happens past their term. 
Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know if it's gonna change until society massively changes. Yeah, but. but I think that's why I give this advice of like, get a tangible, marketable skill because it is. We are unfortunately under a capitalist society, and so <laughs> all of our dreams in conservation are not easily achievable under the way the world is just running now. This yeah. is just the truth. Um, but hopefully, we if we all team up and stop fighting for resources, competing <laughs> for the same grants to do the same work. Like if we work together, we can use the resources more wisely and maybe we can work together to change society and make it a place where there is some municipal services for conservation. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> One day. One day. Um, so yeah, I think, I don't know. Is <laughs> Let's there, fix the world. Let's fix the world. Is there any last words of wisdom you have for all the conservationists or friends and family of conservationists listening that you want to leave them with? Uh, keep on trucking. <laughs> keep on trucking. Do you have any advice for me going into my future? Uh, <laughs> keep on sim- trucking. Similar advice. <laughs> don't, don't be afraid to uh, completely pivot your career <laughs> into a more uh, profitable no, <laughs> surface. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that at all, but like if you have something you're passionate about, right? So if you if you're a conservationist but you love crocheting, could you make a little crochet business on Etsy at the same time or like crochet endangered species and yeah. raise money towards I think we need to start integrating all of our skills into conservation to to like just get by. <laughs> I think that's a better way to say that than like just pivot your life cuz nobody's pivoting their lives. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't nobody going to pivot your life. Um, and if you are struggling mentally, just a reminder that it's not it's not a bad thing to get help. And now I can say that actually with some jurisdiction because I've tried it myself. It is very empowering. It gives the power back to you. And I think that's a really important message that I've learned. And you've all seen me go on this journey. So I hope you can feel how sincere I am about it because you've if you've read the book, you know I talked about all the limitations to seeking help. Then you talked, then you heard me like confess my trauma, and now you've seen me actually go do something about it. So, hopefully, this can inspire some of you that it's not like the be all and end all to start owning these problems and do like not letting them have the power of you anymore, not letting them own you. You have to own them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sound advice. Sound advice. Thank you. I know like mental health was just one chapter, but it took over the whole vibe of this experience for me. It's very yeah. mental health focused. And I think that underlies everything we do, like jobs. You can't do a job unless your mental health is good. You can't go for a walk unless you can get off the couch. Like everything <laughs> we do in the industry starts and ends with our health. And as I say in the book, everyone has a mental health kit. No, I don't say that. I say everyone has a first aid kit when they go out into the field it's something we do as risk assessments and we make sure we know how to handle it if we get snake bites so we need to treat our brain as if it's a limb that gets hurt in the field (laughs) and actually like fix it when there's a problem so yeah um thank you so much for all your support on the book and the podcast it has been such a crazy time thanks for listening guys yeah thanks for listening because that's something we prioritize in lonely conservationists is listening And I really appreciate you listening to us, even though we have no jurisdiction to be giving sound advice to people. Yeah, yeah, and just a huge thank you for going on this journey with me and allowing 
my first mope of the season, my little couch depressive episode to turn into such a wonderful, amazing community. And I'm so proud to have you all. And yeah, I'm just so grateful. This is my gratefulness of the day. (laughs) I'm really going to miss this podcast and the How to Conserve Conservationists journey was really incredible to me and it's really changed my life and I hope it's impacted yours as well. I hope you stay in touch with the Lonely Conservationist community and keep reading the stories of all the amazing people from all around the world who are so brave enough to share their journeys with us. They're over on the website at lonelyconservationist.com. There's also an incredible community of conservationists over on the Instagram at lonelyconservationist and Twitter at lonelyconserve. If you want to keep hearing my voice every week, um, you can tune in to my Wednesday updates on the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash lonelyconservationist. You can read the book to get this experience again in text form and you can just slide into my DMs and say hi whenever you want. I'm always going to be there and happy to have you as a part of the community. Once again, thank you so much for going on this journey with me. I really appreciate your listening ears and your incredible support. And I guess that's it. Bye for now. It's Jessie out.